0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. And Father, we bow our heads before you, the maker, creator of heaven and earth, that you are our God and Father over all and through all and in all, and we worship you. We give our lives to you, Lord God, we want to live in such a way that it's pleasing to you, that it glorifies you, that it bears witness and testimony to those in this world who are in need of you. Your word transforms us. And so even this morning, as we study it, we do pray that you would do that transforming work that you would be working in our minds, that you would be penetrating our hearts. Lord God, that by your spirit, you would take your word and apply it to our lives, to our hands and our feet and our ears and our mouths and our eyes, that we would live lives that are fully determined and dictated by you. by your word. And so have your way with us this morning as we give our attention to your word in worship. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, if you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So as our scripture reading was this morning, we're going to be looking at the the first 6 verses of Ephesians chapter 4 and as we get into Ephesians chapter 4, we have reached this point in the book where you could say we're we're turning a page. If you remember from our very first study in the book of Ephesians, Seth laid out the outline for us as we're working through Ephesians, we go through these first 3 chapters And Paul is laying this, this theological framework, this doctrinal foundation. And then once we get into chapter four, he starts building on that with application. So here is this, this great foundation of doctrine, of theology, understanding all that God has done for you in Christ and one of the, the big themes that we've seen in those first three chapters that we've been seated in heavenly places. So that's the, the spiritual reality, seated in heavenly places. And now as we transition to chapter four and get more into application, we see even in the first verse, this is how you are to walk. Walk. So you've been seated in in heavenly places. This is what God has done for you in Christ. And now here is how you can begin walking this out, living this out on this earth and in this life. So this morning, we're going to jump right into the middle of The passage we're looking at this morning. We're actually going to start in verse 4. We're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6, and then we're going to back our way out of this passage. So I hope that's not too confusing for everybody, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. And then after we look at verses 4, 5, and 6 and the spiritual reality that Paul lays out in those verses, then we're going to take time to talk about application. We're going to look at this practical unity that Paul gives as ready application in verses 1 through 3. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going toward a very practical application. But first, in verses 4, 5, and 6, we're going to lay out this theological foundation that we stand on. So if you look with me at chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians really is a body book. It's a body book. Over and over again as we're going through Ephesians, Paul is talking about the church. In fact, it's a it's a book that's been written to the church. It's not to an individual. It's not like the books of Timothy or Philemon, where it's a personal letter written to an individual. No, this is written to a church, or even better, I'd say, some believe that it's written to a collection of churches. It's a circular letter, so it's a body book. It's a book written for the body of Christ. It's written to a congregation. It's written to a collection of Christians from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, who worked at different occupations, who lived in different socioeconomic realities, but they were called together to live as the church. Jew and Gentile together called one. And in Christ, that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. We've seen that already in Ephesians. So here, Paul says there is one body. He's talking about the church. The church is a body, they were diverse. Different parts, you have arms, you have legs, you have eyes, you have ears, you have all of these different parts, but joined together to form one unit. And it functions best when each part does what it was created to do. We don't function well when our legs try to operate like arms or vice versa, We function best, our bodies function best, when each part does what God created it to do. And so it is in the church. We function best when each part does what it was created to do in harmony with the other parts. So how can it be that such a diverse group, I mean, think of Jews and Gentiles, you don't get much more diverse than that. How can it be that they are one? Paul is emphasizing in verses 4, 5, and 6, one. He says it seven times. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We can be one. And the reality is, the spiritual reality is that we are one because we've been called together by the triune God. Do you see that in 4, 5, and 6? In verse 4, there's one spirit. In verse 5, there's one Lord that's speaking of Jesus. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. Father God. So we have the spirit, we have the Son, and we have the Father in verses four, five and six. We have been called by the Triune God. They are all together, they are mentioned and they are at work in the body. Co-equal, coexistent, coeternal, yet distinct and different in role. That is our, our triune God. So we're talking about unity. Now, I want you to understand that we're not talking about uniformity Father, Son, and Spirit, or as Paul lays it out here, it's the, the reverse of how we typically talk about the Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit. He actually says the Spirit, the Lord, and the Father. But each one is distinct. They're not all the same. They operate in unison, in unity, but they also carry out different functions. So this is unity and not uniformity. So there's one spirit, Paul says in verse seven. There is one body. There is one spirit. Now the spirit does the work of applying redemption. The Spirit has been sent by the Father and by the Son. And as we've seen in Ephesians, the Spirit seals us. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We saw that all the way back in chapter 1. There is one Spirit... And that one Spirit is at work in all of us. Every believer, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, is at work in Caleb, in Grace, in Micah, in each one of us. And that works toward unity. As the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit isn't going to be working out different purposes contradictory purposes in different people within the church. It's going to be carried out differently, yes, but not contradictory, not separating, not tearing apart, but rather drawing together and moving forward together. There is one spirit, and we are all moving toward also, verse 4, this one hope. You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. If you've been listening or reading media lately, that word hope, you've probably come across it recently. Hope and promise. Not about Christmas celebrations, but the COVID vaccine, right? We have hope. There's been talk of hope. But have you noticed that even recently, as now there's more talk about the vaccine, there's concern, even with hope in the air, there are new strains of COVID and how effective is this vaccine going to be? And so we get our hopes up and then, ah, maybe there's a little setback. Maybe there's a, a, a discouragement. Maybe this hope isn't quite as certain as we thought it was going to be. But that's not the Christian hope. Our hope, church, is a certain hope, a guaranteed hope, sure and steadfast, immovable. God has promised it, God will perform it. And we should celebrate this common grace of a vaccine, but it's not our salvation, it's not ultimate. And it's not our great hope. We have all been called together, church, to the same hope. God is working in us toward the same end. And we share this in common, each one of us. We're looking at the same end. And the end is really just the beginning, is it not? And we'll be there all together for eternity. This is great. This is a sure and a steadfast hope. And we should encourage one another to continue looking for this hope. Your redemption draws near. Look up. This is our hope that we've been called to. In verse 5, moving from the Holy Spirit, now verse 5, to the Son Paul refers to him as the Lord, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master. That's what Lord means. He is our conquering king, the Lord Jesus. We just celebrated Christmas, and we remember that in his first advent, he came humbly, born as a baby in a manger. He rode into Jerusalem When he came of age on a donkey, humble, lowly, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was ultimately crucified. But his return, having resurrected and having ascended to glory, he will come back. And what is his return going to be like? Revelation 19, are you familiar with it? Is he going to be riding a little donkey? No. He's going to be riding a white horse. He's going to come conquering. He's going to be wearing a robe, and on his thigh it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our Lord. This is our master. This is the one whom we serve. And believing these things about Jesus, there is one faith. As we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, as we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. That's the stuff that our faith is made up of. That's the basis of our faith. And there is one baptism As we identify with Jesus in his life, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. and verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. And in all, the Holy Spirit has applied redemption. Jesus, the son, he has accomplished redemption. And it is the father who initiated redemption. Do you see how how Paul is kind of laying this out? He first begins with the spirit. That which is maybe most near to us, we could say, at least in our experience. The Holy Spirit who works in us, unites us as one body, seals us and guarantees our inheritance. The Son who has accomplished that, but then backing up even one step further to verse 6, the Father who has started it all, who has initiated it. This redemption. He's sovereign over all. And the Father has worked to carry out his purpose of redemption. This is grand, and this is great, and this is solid stuff. And I want you to know that, church. I want you to understand as we look at these verses and we think about all of this, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, these aren't just easy ideas that we can think of and and pass along. These aren't things that are going to crumble underneath of us. No, these are weighty. These are significant These are the kinds of things that church we build our lives on. These are the things that we have been set on, that God in His kindness has established us upon. And these are the things that that will allow us to not be shaken or moved. This is good, this is solid. This is the kind of thing that that a life will be transformed by and built upon. And as we look at verses one through three, I think that's what we're going to be doing this morning, is looking at this application. What does a life look like that's anchored in these truths In this unity of Father, Son, and Spirit, one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. What does a life look like that's lived out in the light of those realities? Those spiritual realities bring about a very practical unity. So let's back up. Verse 1. I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want you to take note that Paul is emphasizing the call. Paul is emphasizing the call Walk worthy of what? Of the calling to which you have been called. We even saw this in verse four. You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Paul is emphasizing caller, calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And, and what is this calling? Do you remember back in... Chapter one, chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the call that God has called you. Verse 18, we also see having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? That's our calling. He's called us out of death into life. He's called us out of darkness to walk in light. This is a call church that, that is undeserved. This is a, call that is unsolicited. This is a call that is unmatchable. Do you understand that? It's undeserved. That means it's all of grace, this call. God didn't wait until you cleaned yourself up and made yourself presentable and said, all right, now I'll take you onto my team. It's all of grace. It's undeserved. It's a call that comes from the throne of a powerful God and is all of grace. It's also a call that came when you were dead in trespasses and sins. We saw that in chapter two. So it's a call that's unsolicited. We weren't begging God to call us. He called us dead in trespasses and sins, and He made us alive together in Christ. And it's unmatchable. It's unmatchable. Think about the best call that you've ever received. I recently got a call from Washington State Parks to offer me a job. It was a great call. It was an exciting call on the phone. I've got the job. Nothing compared to this call. This call of God is unmatchable. If you've received a call and you've gotten excited about it, think about that in comparison to what God gives you. I get work and a paycheck It's good. I I enjoy it. It's great, but it's nothing in comparison to what God has done in his call of us. This is a call that has you seated in heavenly places in Christ right now. I know you're in a metal folding chair, but you are seated in heavenly places in Christ That's part of this call. You've been washed by the blood of Christ. Washed by his blood, made pure and spotless, even as Christ is pure and spotless. That's part of your call. You've been filled with his spirit. That's part of the call. You've been joined together with the saints. That's part of the call. And you, you are beneficiaries of God's glorious riches. That's part of the call. This is a call that is unmatchable. This is a call that is worthy of your life your effort, your goals and aspirations, your minds, your mouths, your feet, your hands, your eyes, and your ears, all in response to this call that God has placed upon you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's an awesome call. And Paul is urging these Christians to walk in a manner worthy. Now, there's a little danger here, depending on how we read this and how we understand this and and where we go. Walk in a manner worthy. What Paul isn't saying, and I want you all to get this, what Paul is not saying is that somehow you are going to earn, you are going to pay back, what you've received in the call. That is what he is not saying. Don't try to earn the call. That's not what walking worthy of the call is. Don't try to pay God back because you're in debt as a result of this call. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that you... As a recipient of this gracious and this glorious call, being so overcome by the awesome reality of the call, that you allow it to transform the way that you walk, that you walk in a way consistent with that call, that you walk in a way that is consistent with that call. God has called you into his family. He has given you a new name. You are a Christian. Walk in a manner that's consistent with that. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, are they consistent with who you are, with the spiritual reality, with the calling that God has placed upon your life? The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says, he says it this way. This is maybe a little different perspective come from a, a different angle that might be helpful for some. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walking in the same way. Walking consistent with the one that we abide in. Paul wasn't afraid to tell people to walk in a manner worthy of their call. In chapter one of Colossians, he says that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He said to the Philippians in chapter one of his letter to them, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Writing to the church in Thessalonica chapter two He says that we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk in a manner worthy, consistent with who you are, consistent with what God has called you and what he has called you to be. And we are called to walk, to walk in a manner worthy. Walk is a way that Paul refers to carrying out the Christian life. It could also be translated as as walk around. And that's not just walk in circles, right? That's not what God's saying. That's not what Paul is telling us here. But just the way that you walk around, the way that you conduct yourself conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, of the call, in a way consistent. Walk around, conduct yourselves in this way. And now Paul begins to unpack this even more. He gets down to some specifics What does this mean? What does this look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Well, verse two, now he begins to elaborate with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I'm going to read that again because I want that to begin saturating your minds this morning. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What does worthy walking look like? Worthy walking is humble in all humility. Humility. It's humble. Jesus is the greatest example of humility. There's no way around that. There's no arguing that. Even as we studied the gospel of Mark recently, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even Jesus came, the son of man, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's humility. Philippians chapter 2, it's a passage I know many of you are familiar with. Jesus, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is humility. Jesus humbled himself, Jesus served. That is humility. Humility is having a right estimation of who you are. And we need to think about humility in light of our call. Who God has made us and what he has called us to, what he has called us for. He has called us to live for him. He has empowered us with great power But in God's economy, it's in weakness that his strength is seen. It's in ways that the world looks at and would classify as foolishness that God's wisdom is known. And we are to walk in those ways, the ways that God has laid out before us with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness is is one of those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And I think it's worth noting that gentleness is paired right alongside of self-control. Gentleness and self-control. I think those two, two things go together. Gentleness. Because gentleness isn't, going to come naturally for us. It's going to flow as a fruit of the spirit, but the works of the flesh certainly do not include gentleness. And to exercise self-control when we want to be harsh, when when that word wants to be spoken, when that's the first thing that comes to our mind, exercising self-control to conduct ourselves in a way that's gentle. Humility and gentleness, those are consistent with the call that God has placed upon us. And to walk in humility and gentleness is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But Paul also adds in verse 2, patience. Patience, also a fruit of the Spirit. Patience. Patience really demands that we think the best of someone else's intentions. Doesn't it? Patience. If we think that this person has negative intentions, we're going to react quickly. We're going to try to force our way But if we think the best of someone else's intentions, that they want to do what's right, that they want to make things right, we'll be able to exercise more patience. Patience. Patience is is grown up in us through trial. Patience is worked into our lives through tribulation. Just read Romans chapter five. God brings us through difficulty so that he can work into us patience and bearing with one another in love at the end of verse two, bearing with one another In love. That's bearing a burden with one another in love. Working together for a positive outcome. Now that doesn't mean just putting up with one another. I'm bearing with this person. No, you're just putting up with them. But that's different. What Paul is saying goes so far beyond just just putting up with someone. What I mean by that is just tolerating somebody. You no know, bearing with one another in love, bearing a burden. You're on that end, I'm on this end, and, and we're lifting together, and we're going to bear this together. I was reminded, thinking about this, and setting the roof trusses on our house with my wife. These big trusses, 30 feet long, they're awkward, it was dangerous, working on the tops of second-story walls. And as we're trying to get these burdens moved into place, we had to bear with one another in love. There had to be love between us. There was a lot of communication between us. Tensions were high, it was difficult, it was hard work, and it was dangerous. So yeah, tensions were high, but we worked together. And we were moving these very methodically and very carefully with one another, bearing these burdens together, bearing with one another in love. And as we were able to do that, the result was, we got a roof on our house. It's pretty fantastic. When it rains or snows, we're dry. We're warm. There was good that was produced because of this bearing with one another in love, humility, gentleness, patience. And bearing with one another in love. There's a, a great little book on Ephesians written by a man named Watchman Nee. It's called Sit, Walk, Stand. And it's, it's kind of a, a short, brief exposition of the book of Ephesians. But in this section... Looking around chapter four about living out these great spiritual realities, Watchman Nee, he tells the story of a rice farmer in South China. And his rice field, this this farmer, was in the middle of a hillside. And so when water was needed during times of drought, he used a treadmill powered water mill uh, to pump water up. To irrigate his field. So he's pumping water up the hill to irrigate his rice field, but then his neighbor had had two fields that were lower down. And one night, after pumping all this water up into his field, the neighbor came and made a breach so that all the water ran down out of his field to irrigate his own fields. This man was stealing the water and all the work that this man had done. So, the farmer with the field in the middle of the hill, he was a Christian. So, he repaired the breach, went back to work, pumped water for his field again. And again, the neighbor drained off the water to his own fields, and again, and again, repeating this three or four times. And finally, the Christian sought counsel from his brothers What do I do? I have not retaliated and I've tried to be patient, but I'm not sure if this is right. And so they prayed. And after praying, one of the brothers spoke and said to this farmer, if we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. So following this, the farmer then began pumping water in the morning into his neighbor's fields and then into his own field in the afternoon. His neighbor eventually became a Christian. Seeing this this life that was transformed, seeing this life that was lived in such a way worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which this man had been called consistent with the gospel. And he wanted that for himself. And he became a Christian himself doing more than just what is right. And I'd ask you this morning, church, who? is creating a breach and draining off your effort. And as you think about how you would answer that, I want to remind you in Ephesians chapter four, Paul is writing to the church and he is writing about the church. This farmer had a witness to his unbelieving neighbor But here in Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul says that we are to conduct ourselves with humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, he's saying that's with each other. That's within the church. I hope you're not shocked. We have to bear with one another in love? The reality is there are going to be difficulties. There are going to be times that are tense. There are going to be differences. Don't think about your unbelieving neighbor or your unbelieving coworker right now. But as you think about how you are to conduct yourself in these ways, think about within the church. Maybe it's within your home. Maybe it's a child who keeps pushing and testing and and trying you. And as a a brother or sister in Christ, you need to conduct yourself with humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Maybe it's a spouse or a sibling, that person who knows just the thing to say and when to say it for maximum irritation or frustration. They're good at it. Or maybe there's a brother or a sister that, that has wronged you in some way. I'm not talking about sibling, I'm talking about brother or sister in Christ, someone else in the church that, that has wronged you in some way. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called: humility. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And in verse three, Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager, it's it's a great word. Zealous, diligent, diligent, To make every effort. If you want to think about eager, maybe think about Christmas morning, right? You're ready to get up. You're excited. There's a zeal. I'm going to get up. I'm going to get this day going. There are good things waiting. It's a day of celebration. Eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I like that word maintain as well. That's what I do. That's what I do for work as I maintain things. And in the, in the world of maintenance, we talk about different kinds of maintenance. There's preventive maintenance. If you, if you think about a car... Preventive maintenance. You go in and you get oil changes and you get tires rotated. That's preventive maintenance. Those are just regular little things that you do to keep your vehicle running well. Preventive maintenance. Then there's predictive maintenance. Sticking with a car, if you think of predictive maintenance. Oh, well, this vehicle... They lose their timing belt at at this certain interval, and so we take our vehicle in and get the timing belt replaced before that so it doesn't cause greater problems. History's shown that these fail at this point, so we're going to fix it at this point before the failure. So you predict what's going to happen, and you respond ahead of time in order to keep from having More significant or or major problems. And then there's reactive maintenance. Reactive maintenance. This would be like a dead transmission or when wheels fall off on the interstate. Reactive. Now I need to do something, usually results in a in a tow truck. Reactive maintenance. What does this look like in the life of the church? In relationship with one another, preventive maintenance of the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, preventive maintenance, having regular contact with each other, conversations, praying for one another, allowing the, the oil of the Holy Spirit to regularly lubricate your conversations and interactions with each other, Right? Proverbs talks about iron sharpening iron. You start rubbing iron together. Allow the oil of the Holy Spirit to lubricate some of that. Turn the heat down a little bit. The predictive maintenance of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That'd be following up with the brother or sister in Christ after a difficulty they've encountered. Maybe you know in this person's life there's a certain date or there's a certain time of year or there's a situation that was really difficult. And seeing how can I serve them in this time, I anticipate that there are going to be some troubles or some difficulties, that there's going to be a little maintenance needed at this point. And so you step in. This requires a higher level of familiarity. Do you understand that? This, this predictive maintenance that you have to know each other, that there's a level of intimacy. I know this person and I know that, that this date, maybe this anniversary is a really difficult time for them. Or I know that this time of year, or I know that just what they're going through in life right now is really hard. And so I'm going to serve them. I'm going to come alongside in humility and gentleness with patience. And I'm going to bear with them in love. I'm going to help carry this load with them, bearing with one another in love. And then there's the reactive maintenance of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this happens when there's conflict, when there's that really tough conversation, when there's misunderstanding. And then you're working to do some damage control. You're working to get things operational once again. Obviously, this, this is the least desirable type of maintenance that anybody does. Preventive maintenance, predictive maintenance. That's where we want to be normally operating. But sometimes... Things go sideways, things go wrong. And there's this reactive maintenance. When there's that conversation that maybe flares up or there's that thing that you said that you didn't think would be taken in a certain way, but it was received in a certain way. And now you need to come alongside that brother or sister in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with them in love working in this bond of peace to see the unity of the Spirit at work. Church, this is, this is what we've been called to, to walk in these things, to operate, to function together as a church in these ways. You see, the church is God's vehicle of mission and witness to an onlooking world. And this vehicle, this vehicle of mission and witness needs this regular maintenance, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like any vehicle, it needs work here and there. It needs some tuning, some adjustment, some regular maintenance. But it is work that is worth doing. It is work that is worth doing because we have been called to a great and to a worthy calling. And as we live this out, as we function this way together within the church, God is glorified in us. And an onlooking world looks and sees this at work within us. And they say, I I want that. There's something there that I want to be part of. And it's unity. It's unity. It's unity of the spirit at work within us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for Paul's instruction to the church at Ephesus and how even today we can read these words and we can apply them so readily to our situations, to our life, together as a church. And even as Nathan spent time praying this passage over Pillar Bible Fellowship, Lord, together we agree and we say yes and amen. So be it, Lord. Work these things in us as individuals that we would carry them out together as a church family so that together we might bring glory to you, that it would be these good works from the Holy Spirit at work within us that the world would look on and see us shining as lights together, not not just individual lights, but like a city a city made up of of homes and households and individuals, and together the light of that city shines so brightly. Lord, unite us together that as one, we would burn brightly for you, that we would shine and bear witness and testimony to your grace at work within us. Lord God, that you would be glorified through us. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.